Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This episode of Reaganism features guest host, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff, interviewing Russian democracy dissident Vladimir Karamurza. Vladimir was a longtime colleague of Russian opposition leader Boris Nepsov and chairs the Boris Nepsov Foundation for Freedom. Vladimir is a former deputy leader of the People's Freedom Party and was a candidate for the Russian State Duma. He has testified before parliaments in Europe and North America and played a key role in the passage of the Magnitsky legislation that imposed targeted sanctions on Russian human rights violators. Rachel and Vladimir discuss his life as a democracy activist, the ongoing protests in Russia today, and his optimism that the Putin regime will eventually be toppled. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Rachel Hoff, and I'm very pleased to introduce our guest today, Vladimir Karamurza. Vladimir is a Russian opposition leader who has dedicated his life, often at great cost, as, as you'll hear soon, to advocate two things that are really at the heart of President Reagan's legacy and also at the center of the work we do here at the Reagan Institute. Those two things are freedom and democracy. I'm also honored to call Vladimir a friend. Thank you so much for, for joining us here today, Vladimir. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's always good to see you and I'm honored to join this conversation at the Reagan Institute. So our conversation today obviously is, is really timely, Vladimir. You know, Tens of, of thousands of Russians have, have taken to the streets in, in recent days. Um, really to, to stand up for those very values, freedom and democracy, um, following obviously the, the arrest of another opposition figure, Alexei Navalny. Um, you know, the world is watching as, as that unfolds and, and they're also watching the, the violent crackdown and, and resp response from the Putin regime. Um, we've got a lot of, lot of ground to cover today, Vladimir, and obviously I wanna, wanna get your thoughts on all of those current events, but. I wondered if it might be great to start uh, in the era before Vladimir Putin, to go back before Putin's rise to power, as in many ways I'm sure you, you would love to do. Um, talk through us, if you would, uh, about your own story, kind of as it intertwines with, with Russia's story itself. So, you know, I, you probably grew up in, in some of what turned out to be the final uh, years of the Soviet Union and and kind of came of age politically at least during um, during that interesting era that in in kind of the interregnum period in in the 1990s the Yeltsin years tell us about um, your own story and kind of how that um, comes together with with Russia's own story during that pre-Putin era. Well, I'm a Moscovite, born in Moscow, went to school in Moscow, and as a child, I do remember the Soviet Union. I remember the, you know, the grayness of it, the empty shelves and stores, the portraits of Lenin, the red flags, and, and everything uh, associated with uh, with that horrible system. Uh, and then, when I was ten years old, 
something amazing happened. You know, one early morning in August of 1991, uh, we woke up to the side of the tanks on the streets of Moscow. Um, that was the last desperate attempt by the top Soviet leadership to sort of reverse those processes of perestroika and glasnost and, you know, timid uh, democratization that was happening under Gorbachev and go back to the sort of the bad old ways to reestablish total totalitarian control. And the people who were behind that attempted coup d'etat uh, were really the top brass of the Communist Party, the military, the KGB. I mean, the people who had all the levers of power uh, in their hands, they had the whole you know, propaganda machine and the government and party bureaucracy, and of course the enormous apparatus of repression from the regular army to the uh, feared KGB. Um, and they had those tanks, which they sent to occupy uh, downtown Moscow. Uh, and I have to tell you, it's, uh, it's a frightening sight to see tanks on the streets of a peaceful city. They're not made for that. And, you know, those people seemingly had everything at their disposal. Russian citizens, Muscovites who refused to accept that power grab, who refused to accept that coup d'etat, were not armed with anything except their own dignity and their determination to defend their freedom. And so they went into the streets, initially in the thousands, then very soon in the hundreds of thousands, and literally stood in front of those tanks. And then the tanks stopped and turned away. As I mentioned, I was 10 years old at the time, too young to join my father on the barricades by the Moscow White House, which was the seat of the Russian parliament that became the center of uh, resistance to that coup. But I was certainly old enough to grasp and understand the lesson of what was happening, that however strong a dictatorship, however strong um, a totalitarian system, when enough people in society are willing to stand up to defend their dignity and their rights and their freedom, no amount of repression uh, can stop that. And then the tanks will turn away and leave. You know, as um, President Reagan said in his Westminster speech in 1982, uh, regimes planted by bayonets do not take root. Uh, and I think what we saw on the streets of Moscow in, in August of 1991 was a very vivid uh, illustration of that. And so in a way, my generation uh, was destined to be politicized because, you know, when your first conscious political memory, as it was for me, is a democratic revolution that does, of course, color everything you then do and it does sort of influence you in a, in a great and important way. And certainly that lesson of August 1991 will stay with me for as long as I live. And that is actually an important foundation and basis for my optimism today, uh, now fighting another iteration of authoritarianism that we're living through in Russia. But you asked about the um, 10 years of freedom that we had uh, under President Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s. It was a period that is much maligned, uh, including in the West, including, you know, in Hollywood movies and, and people very often sort of talk derisively about, oh, you know, those horrible 90s. That is, of course, is a central theme for the Putin propaganda. They try to explain everything, you know, with those horrible 90s when, you know, things were so bad and, and Russia was on its knees and, and whatever other, you know, propaganda cliches they come up with. It was a very difficult period of time. There's no question about it. It always is when, when dictatorships fall and when empires fall. Uh, and if you look at any country after the fall of such a repressive system, uh, yes, those countries do go through difficult periods and we were no exception. And that, of course, 
uh, was the damaging legacy of decades of Soviet totalitarianism that our country that our country had to endure. Um, there were also other factors that added to the difficulties, the many mistakes that were made by the democratic reformers in, in uh, Yeltsin's government, the insufficient, in my view, and we can talk about this in more detail, but the insufficient level of support from Western democracies mm -hmm. to the nascent democratic Russia in the 1990s also contributed to that. But, you know, it was also the longest and the most sustained period of political freedom in the entire history of Russia. It was the only period when we didn't have any political prisoners. It was the only period when we actually had competitive democratic elections, when you didn't know the election result ahead of time, which is a revolutionary concept in, in Russia today under Putin, you know, when the election results were actually determined by how people voted. When we had a period of media pluralism, when national television did not shy away from criticizing the government and offering you know, independent news coverage and political satire and everything that happens in democratic nations. We had that back in the 90s too. And many, many other things that seem, uh, you know, unattainable today, we did have, we did have all that back then. And that is of course also something that I remember and I uh, grew up essentially in the 1990s. You know, when, when Putin came to power, I turned 18 years old. That was my first uh, you know, uh, election I voted in. Uh, uh, it was in December of 1999, which incidentally also happens to be the last free and fair parliamentary election that Russia had up until this day. And you don't need to take my word for it. Just look at the reports from the observer missions by the OSCE and the Council of Europe. Uh, the last time they assessed the Russian parliamentary election to have been free and fair and democratic was in December of 1999, which is the first time I voted in my life. Um, and so I'm very grateful to have lived through and to have experienced and to have seen that brief period of freedom in Russia, because, you know, someone who is even a little younger than me, someone who say is 25 years or 30 years even of age today, um, all they remember in their conscious life is Vladimir Putin and his dictatorship, because this man has now stayed in power for 21 years. You know, you in America have had five different presidents of both parties in the White House, uh, while we have had this former KGB officer usurping power in our country without such niceties as political competition or free and fair elections. Yeah. Well, we all certainly know, you know, that that history that that's come since then. Tell us a bit about your own decision to to become politically involved. I mean, you mentioned that you're from a generation that was destined to be politically involved, but but you you maybe went above and beyond. I know. You know, you, you ran for office yourself during some of the the earliest years of of um, of the Putin era, running for the Duma, and then and then obviously in in your decades of work since then have um, have done so much uh, both in Russia and, and around the world. Um, tell us about your decision to become politically involved during during that time. Well, I was always interested in in politics, always interested in, you know, watching political news programs. In fact, uh, when I was in, uh, I think it was in the sixth grade in school, uh, uh, you know, I put together a few friends and we established uh, a political party at the time. Uh, you know, obviously it didn't go anywhere beyond that school, but just to... What was it called? Uh, it was called the, the Children's Democratic Party of Russia. I still remember oh, the I name. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I sort of approached uh, adulthood, um, I, I strengthened in my intention to actually make that a lifetime vocation to go into public services. I was hoping then, because of course, back then we still had free elections and we still had opportunities to, to go into public service and to seek elected office. Uh, and then when I was 18 years old, um, so I was about to finish school, I, uh, 
met somebody who played an immense role in my life. I had enormous influence and, and continues to, even though unfortunately he's no longer with us today. And that is, of course, Boris Nemtsov, whom you, Rachel, know as well, personally mm -hmm. from, from your time in the Foreign Policy Initiative, who was in many ways the face, the embodiment of Russia's hopes for democracy in the 1990s. Of course, he was someone that I you know, saw on my television screen uh, as a child. He was a, um, a four-term member of parliament, a very successful regional governor uh, in Russia in the mid-1990s, in Nizhny Novgorod, who in the space of just a few years turned his region from you know, a Soviet-era industrial backwater into a hub of successful free market reforms. And, and he had people from all over the world, including Margaret Thatcher, go and visit Nizhny Novgorod to, to see for themselves you know, the success of this free market experiment mm -hmm. in Russia, which contrasted in many ways with, with, what, was with what was happening on the national level. Um, he was brought in uh, by President Yeltsin as first deputy prime minister in the late 1990s. And many people thought uh, that Boris Nemtsov uh, would be the natural successor to, to Boris Yeltsin as a natural candidate for the presidential election. And boy, what a different world that would have been had Boris Nemtsov become president of Russia. But history chose otherwise. And when um, Putin came to power at the end of 99, beginning of 2000, Boris Nemtsov, unlike so many of his colleagues of his fellow members of the Yeltsin era establishment in the 1990s refused to play along with the new rules, refused to accept another dictatorship, refused to, you know, check his principles at the door and find himself, you know, a plush position in, in this new system as so many others have done. He just couldn't do it because that's who he was. I mean, for him, the whole purpose of, of being in, in political life was to actually stand up for your principles and to further your principles. And so that naturally led him first into the opposition uh, within parliament, while we still had a, a real parliament in Russia until the early 2000s. He was the leader of the, of the uh, largest pro-democracy opposition uh, caucus in the Russian state Duma until 2003. And then when our parliament became not a place for discussion, to quote the Duma speaker, Boris Grezlov, one of the closest colleagues of Vladimir Putin, when our elections became meaningless rituals when, when all of our media, or at least all of our major media outlets, certainly all national television networks were subjugated to the state. And when the only way to express your opposition to Putin and Putin's regime was to go out into the streets, um, Boris Nemtsov became the most prominent, the most effective leader of that uh, new opposition to Putin and Putinism, organizing and leading those mass street protests successfully advocating for targeted Western sanctions against those cronies and oligarchs uh, in and around Putin. And I'm sure we'll talk more, more about that aspect of our work. Uh, even managing to organize um, local election victories for the opposition, which should be impossible, right, in an authoritarian system. But he did, and he was himself, in fact, elected to the legislature not long before his, his death. Um, I met with him at the, at the end of 1999. And it, it is and will always remain the honor of my life to have worked for 15 years uh, alongside him, more than 15 years, all the way to that terrible night of February 27th of 2015, when Boris Nemtsov was killed by five bullets in the back as he walked across a bridge in front of the Kremlin. It was the most high profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia. And to this day, the organizers of that assassination uh, continue to be fully shielded and fully protected from the highest levels of the Russian government. You know, he was too principled to be 
bought to uh, bought to be silenced and, and and too dangerous to be tolerated. So they silenced him in the only way mm-hmm. they could. Um, it's it's the honor of my life to have worked alongside him for more than 15 years, and and he was the person who I think had the biggest influence, uh, not only on my views but also on on what I chose and decided to to do in life and. It is my hope that to the best of my ability, I can continue alongside, you know, many friends and colleagues in the Russian pro-democracy movement to carry on Boris's legacy and Boris's work all the way until that day when Russia is finally free from the Putin dictatorship. Well, those are, that's such a powerful story, Vladimir, and it, I can, I can say for me personally, certainly one of the great honors of my life was to, to get to know Boris during, during his incredible life and uh, those days uh, boy, over ten years ago now, when when you and he would travel to Washington and and um, you know advocate for for the the changes that we needed to see in order to to have some some of those levers that you mentioned with regard to um, to to the Russian oligarchs, but but also in many ways just warn warn us and our leaders about many of the the things that we've seen out play in in Russia since then. And that night that Boris died was certainly a difficult one for all of us. Um, I, I remember remember it well, but I'm sure it was especially difficult for you and for those who who were were such close close friends and and colleagues. Um, I think one of the things that amazes me and and so many other Americans who, in of course, in many ways, take our own freedom for granted, is that even even after the story that you just told, even even after the ending of the story that that you just told, not just Boris's promise, but but his his assassination, you not only didn't give up the work, but you you really doubled down in in your efforts to to um, you know to secure a, a free and, and democratic Russia. Um, tell us about that decision. You know what what goes through your mind as you as you make that decision, knowing what price you may pay for it, and and obviously the um, the price that you have paid. You're you're of course a, a survivor of of Putin's crimes yourself um, poisoned not once but twice in in recent years and and gone through an incredible health journey to get where you are today. Um, tell us about that decision, especially following Boris's killing and and um, and the experiences you've had since then. Well, to be honest, Rachel, it's not even so much of a decision. It, it wasn't even a, a question in my mind. And I know the same goes for a lot of people. Certainly went for Boris Nemtsov, certainly went for uh, and goes for Alexei Navalny, uh, currently the most prominent opponent of Putin's regime, who, who was himself poisoned last year. Uh, and then after his uh, medical rehabilitation in Germany, came back to uh, Russia knowing that he will be arrested and he was arrested and he is uh, imprisoned now as we're speaking with you. Uh, to me, there was, you know, there was no question in my mind as to, uh, as to going back to Russia and resuming my work after both of my poisonings. As as you, as you just noted, I have been poisoned on two different occasions. So once in uh, in May of 2015, the second time in February of 2017. Both times, in Moscow, both times was some kind of a very strong and sophisticated toxic substance that, by the way, is a method that has been borrowed from the Soviet times. Poisoning has long been a favorite tool of uh, Soviet security services and something that has been uh, used and, in fact, it's greatly expanded by Vladimir Putin. People know of those many poisoning attacks against Kremlin opponents in recent years. Um, I'm very fortunate and very grateful to have survived 
Then on two occasions, both times I was in a coma with a multiple organ failure and both times doctors told my wife that I had about a 5% chance to live. So I cannot tell you, I, I cannot express in any words how, how fortunate and how grateful I feel to be able to sit here and speak with you today. But there was no question in my mind for a second that as soon as I'm physically able to, I'm gonna go back and resume my work, which I did as soon as doctors physically allowed me to fly, which took a few months. I mean, I had to learn to walk again, especially after the first poisoning with some really devastating health effects. So it took a while to recover. But as soon as I was physically able to, I, I hopped straight on a plane after completing my medical rehab in the US and went straight back to Russia. And I did the same thing as soon as I could after the second poisoning. And so, you know, when Alexei Navalny woke up from, from his coma at the Berlin Charité Hospital last September, and he said, one of the first things he said that he will go back as soon as he's able to, I was inundated by calls from journalists, you know, mostly Western journalists, um, asking me to comment on this sensation, as they put it, to which I said that not only don't I see any kind of sensation here, I don't see any news at all. Of course, he's going to go back, just as I did, just as many other people did. I mean, the only place for a Russian politician is Russia. It cannot be any other way. In fact, back in the Soviet times, the Soviet regime discovered that the most effective way of targeting political dissent and political dissidents, opponents of the of the Soviet regime, was not to imprison them, not to arrest them, you know, not even to uh, put them in psychiatric hospitals. All of these things were done, but as Yuri Andropov, the Soviet KGB chairman, eventually concluded, the most effective way was to forcibly expel those dissident leaders mm -hmm. to the West, as they did with Solzhenitsyn, as they did with Bukovsky, as they did with Orlov and Ginsburg and so many others. Because once outside of the country, these leaders not only lost the sort of the connections, but, but more importantly, the, the moral authority and the moral cloud. And, you know, the, the biggest gift that those of us who are in opposition to Putin and his regime could give to the Kremlin is if we all just gave up and ran away. There's nothing better they would like from us. And you know what? We're not going to do that because we care about our country. We care about the future of our country. We think Russia deserves better than to be ruled. You know, a European country in a 21st century is ruled by a murderous authoritarian kleptocracy. We deserve better than that. And there are millions of people in Russia who share our vision, who share our view, and who share our goal uh, of you know, attaining that day when Russia finally becomes, to use the recent words of Alexei Navalny in one of his interviews, a normal European country. There are millions of Russians who want that. And for their sake, we must continue. And so um, it wasn't even a question as to whether or not to go back and resume. Uh, we're not going to give gifts of this magnitude to the Putin regime. Mm. Incredibly inspiring. Um, let's turn to to what's going on today in in Russia and uh, with Navalny's arrest. Um, you know, as you as you watch that, help us give some context to how we should how we should think about these events. What what exactly is happening? Why it's happening? And what it might mean for um, sort of the near term of, of Russia's future. You know, one of the biggest lies, and, and I have to say, one of the most effective lies of the Putin regime that it, its propaganda machine has spread over the years is that Vladimir Putin remains really popular among Russians. I continue to be amazed as to how, how often I still hear that even in the West from serious pundits, you know, and serious journalists. Yes, you know, Putin is bad. He's doing all these, all these things. But, you know, Russians love him. He's, he's really popular among Russian citizens. Um, well, I hope at least the recent events will finally put an end 
to this enormous lie and this enormous myth that uh, that has been built around Putin's so-called popularity. You know, we're supposed to accept those opinion poll figures at face value that give Putin those high uh, percentages of support. You know, uh, I, I I always wonder why is it why it's so difficult for people to actually just put things into context and imagine an unfree society, an authoritarian regime, where people know what happens to those who dare to oppose the system. We've just discussed this with you a few minutes ago. Um, but people know that those who oppose the Putin dictatorship are called traitors and foreign agents and enemies of Russia and all the rest of it with all the consequences that that could entail. And then you sit in your house, on your kitchen, and you get a phone call, or even worse, a knock on the door. And somebody comes in and says, hello, I'm from a polling agency. What do you think of Vladimir Putin? What are you going to say? I mean, this is as meaningless as anything can be. Uh, and of course, the other proof we are supposed to accept for, for Putin's high popularity are so-called election results. And people say, yes, you know, but Putin gets all those high figures in election results. You know, it's not difficult to win an election when your opponents are not on the ballot. And that's the way Putin has run elections in his two decades in power. Not, not once has he allowed serious opposition or serious competition uh, to, to run against him. And yet, astonishingly, even in those conditions, increasingly, Russian citizens are finding ways to send messages uh, to the Kremlin uh, and, and to the system that they've had enough. Um, look at the past couple of years, what's been happening with local elections across Russia. Again, as, as, in most, as happens in most cases, genuine opponents are usually disqualified from the ballot ahead of time. And uh, this is what happened, for example, in the Moscow city council elections in, in 2019. All the major opposition candidates were disqualified. More than that, they were jailed for the duration of the campaign. There were demonstrations on the streets of Moscow. Tens of thousands of people went out. They were brutally beaten down and dispersed by security forces. Some people are still serving prison terms now for participating in those demonstrations. And then came election day. That was September of 2019. And how do you protest if you don't have an opponent on the ballot, right, to send a message to the regime? So. What Alexei Navalny and other uh, Russian opposition figures um, sort of came up with is to organize this tactical voting campaign where, yes, okay, there are no genuine opposition candidates on the ballot, but there are always some spoilers or some technical candidates who are there just to imitate competition. And so Navalny called on, on his supporters and on opposition supporters to go out and vote for these technical no-names to send a message. And you know what? In almost half the districts for the Moscow City Council, pro-Putin candidates were sent to humiliating defeats against literally nobody uh, because people went out and sent a message. My favorite story was in the north of Moscow in the Shukino district where a friend of mine, Alexander Solovyov, uh, who is from the Open Russia opposition group, was, was running for the city council seat. He was uh, uh, barred from the ballot. He was put in jail. But then there was another candidate with the same name, you know, the classical spo classic spoiler tactic, where you put in somebody with the same name to confuse voters. So another Alexander Solovyov, who has never appeared in the district, he has never held a single campaign event, he hasn't spent a kopeck on his on his election campaign. And he won in a landslide, because Navalny and other opposition leaders have called on people but to go real, vote for him. I'm sorry? They're real people? These Yes, they're these real politics. people, just some random guy who, yeah. who never had anything to do with politics before. He just... It's not Mickey Mouse or something. They just put him on because he has the same name. And so when he won, 
in a landslide against the uh, pro-regime, pro-Putin candidate, the Electoral Commission actually spent three days to try to locate where he is to tell him that he is now an elected member of the legislature, which he still is to this day. So yes, he's very much a real person. And, um, and this happened in many places. And this happened uh, also in the local elections last year in 2020, where we had a case, for example, in the Kostromar region, which is about 300 uh, kilometers northeast of Moscow, where one incumbent mayor from Putin's party, the United Russia Party, put up his office cleaner uh, on the ballot to imitate competition. And she got 62% and was wow. elected against him. And, and she was really confused because she obviously didn't expect to become mayor. I mean, these are humorous stories, but there's a serious point behind it that so many people in Russia are frankly fed up with this single man rule over two decades. You know, we have a whole generation that has no other political memories except this one man. And that's not normal. Uh, that people are finding these creative ways of sending a message. Then, of course, perhaps the, I, I talked about all the caveats and all the, inevitable skewing that accompanies public opinion polling in an authoritarian state. But even with those caveats, we see figures such as, especially where Putin's name personally is not involved, we see figures such as 59% of Russians of all ages uh, calling for comprehensive change in the country. We see 62% of Russians, these are figures from the Levada Center, which is the last more or less independent pollster left. 62% of Russians, nearly two thirds, who wants to age limit the presidency at 70. Putin's going to be 71 by the time of the 2024 presidential election. It's sort of a euphemistic way to oppose a dictator without calling him by name, right? Uh, and then, of course, more spectacularly, to go back to your question, we see the you know, street demonstrations uh, that we have been witnessing across the country. I mentioned those protests in Moscow in the summer of 2019. For much of last year, 2020, in the far eastern city of Khabarovsk, where we've seen tens of thousands of people coming out to demonstrate against the Putin system, which is unprecedented because mostly, you know, as anybody who studies Russian history knows, mostly political events in Russia happen in, in the capital cities. So Moscow, St. Petersburg, whichever historical period we're talking about, usually nothing outside. And here we, we've seen this in the Far East, but even more importantly, and even more spectacularly over these past couple of weeks nationwide, since Alexei Navalny's uh, return and arrest on January 17th, we have seen tens of thousands of people coming out to the streets all over the country in, in more than 100 cities and towns, literally from the Baltic to the Pacific. Uh, and these are banned demonstrations, by the way, right? It's important for our listeners to sort of grasp the difference. You know, demonstrating against the government in, in Russia is not the same as demonstrating against the government in the United, in a, in the United States, where you, you, know, you have your First Amendment rights, you have usually these rallies are protected by police. In Russia, you're beaten up and arrested by police if you go out and demonstrate against against the regime. And this is what happened, for example, on uh, on, on January 23rd, which was the first weekend after Navalny's arrest, when we had the first wave of those protests, um, there were more than 3,000 arrests made on a single day. Mm. That was a record even for arrested opposition demonstrations in Russia. And this is going to continue, and this is only going to build up. And what's, what's truly amazing about these uh, protests is first that they are national, that this mm -hmm. is not just Moscow, St. Petersburg, this is the whole country. And second, that they are so young in their participation. And that's really amazing to see, you know, this very generation that doesn't remember anyone except Putin is in fact now at the forefront 
of this movement for change. These, you know, these people who are high school students, university students in many cases. Uh, and by the way, when the regime tried to prevent those rallies from going ahead, they would apply pressure to college rectors or to high school principals or to parents to make sure, you know, to keep the kids at home. It didn't work. None of this worked because this generation is hungry for change. They're fed up with seeing the same frozen face on their television screens for more than two decades. Right. And, and actually one other thing I would add, um, Apart from all these things that are kind of seen now to the entire world, the street protests, these these uh, local election messages and, and everything that's been happening, I think to me, actually, the most vivid demonstrations of this uh, fundamental shift in Russian public opinion um, has been the way uh, 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 in which the people are much more willing to share their opinions and to share then negativity about this regime even with random strangers on the street. I mean, you know, even back in Soviet times, people would complain in their own kitchen with their own family members, right? But now this is really in the open. So just before, just to give you a specific example, just before the new year, uh, Putin had his annual press conference, you know, carefully staged managed event that's, you know, televised across the country with, of course, all of these planted questions. Um, and this is, uh, this is, you know, on everybody's television screens in all the public places in stores, you know, in, in airports and, railroad stations anyway it's like you know that movie 1984 from on, on george orwell's, orwell's novel when you see big brother on the screen you know on on, on the wall it's kind of kind of similar and on that day, i don't remember the date but this was just before the new year so late december i had to run a few errands around the city around moscow so i, I needed to go to a, to a notary's office i had to do some shopping i mean i took a taxi to go somewhere and uh and you wouldn't believe what people are saying when they see and hear Putin's, Putin's face and Putin's voice, you know, all the negative things mm -hmm. people are saying, not to somebody they know, but just to random strangers who happen to be around them. Yeah. And this to me is a red line, that when so many people are publicly willing to share the negative views about this regime, uh, you know, that's, we're nearing the end. There's actually no question about it. I mean, every dictatorship has an expiration uh, date, and it seems that Vladimir Putin's is, is fast approaching its own. Well, so you really do. I mean, I guess in in the life of a uh, uh, somebody who's committed themselves to to um, you know a, a free and democratic Russia, you you always have to be optimistic, right? I, that's part of the nature of the work, and and I've always known you to be to be the best kind of optimist. But you really do seem to sense that this time is is something different. What you know, I, help us think through what um, a post. Putin, Russia, or what, what that change might look like. I mean, you mentioned, you know, whether it's age limiting the, the, the office or, or how, however Putin exits the stage, he will, he will eventually leave office. And what, what does come next? And, and, you know, how should we think of that in the near term or, or be optimistic for, for a longer term change? So actually the main source of my optimism is not even in the fact that I'm involved and have been involved in the pro-democracy movement, but but uh, it's because I'm a historian by education, mm. uh, and uh, you know, as historians, we sort of try to look at the bigger picture as opposed to just you know one week or one month. And one thing that Russian history teaches us, without any doubt, is that big political changes in our country come suddenly and unexpectedly, including for their own participants. You know, in 1904, when the Tsarist interior minister, uh, von Pleve, uh, pushed for a small victorious war, as he put it, in that case against Japan, to try to sort of solve all the domestic problems of the empire, I doubt that he expected that just one year later, largely as a result of that war, um, Russia would be engulfed 
in our first revolution, and the Tsar would be forced to uh, establish a parliament and, and grant his subjects civil uh, and political freedoms. You know, when Lenin spoke to a group of uh, Swiss social democrats in Zurich at the end of January 1917 and told them that my generation will not live to see the decisive battles of the coming revolution, the revolution began in six weeks. And I myself am old enough, as we've discussed at the beginning of our conversation, that you know nobody at the beginning of August of 1991 could have predicted that by the end of the month, the Soviet regime would no longer exist and the Soviet Union itself would no longer exist by the end of the year. And that one of the most horrific totalitarian systems in history would go down in three days. This is how things happen in Russia. And so, you know, when I hear these um, statements by, well, by Kremlin propagandists, that's not surprising, but also by some people in the West, you know, the, some fellow travelers, but also some, some serious analysts who say that, oh, Putin is so strong, it's so stable. Uh, his regime is so stable, nothing's going to happen. Well, that kind of reminds me of what people were saying back mm -hmm. in 1991. And again, as historians, we have to learn lessons from history. Uh, and, and that's one very important lesson. And uh, it's, uh, it's just impossible not to see the trends, the trends in society, the trends in public opinion. Uh, and But I think the most important um, sort of tasks before us now, and this goes directly to your question, is to start preparing for that coming change. Because all of those instances I mentioned uh, previously, 1905, 1917, 1991, one of the biggest problems with all of that sudden, rapid and unexpected change was that people were not ready for it. And so many mistakes were made. I mean, we could go back to the early 20th century, but you know, to focus on something that's within living memory of, of most of our listeners in the early 90s, uh, there were major mistakes made both on the Russian side and also on the Western side. On the Russian side, you know, those reformers in Yeltsin's government did not heed the voices of those like Vladimir Bukovsky, a famed Soviet air dissident, or Galina Starovoitova, a prominent pro-democracy lawmaker at the time in the Russian parliament, who said that it's not enough to just shed, you know, the outward trappings of the old regime and to move towards a free and pluralistic society. It's also important to account for the crimes of that former regime to make those documents and archives public, to condemn what those communist dictatorships did, uh, uh, perhaps to restrict the people who were perpetrators of those crimes from ever holding office again. Though all of those things were done in countries of, in other countries of Eastern and Central Europe, but not in Russia, and we see the consequences of that. That was a major mistake on the Russian side. The major mistake on the Western side, um, in my view, was that the West was not willing, at least not willing enough, to fully integrate that nascent democratic Russia that was there in the early 90s mm -hmm. as one of its own into the system of European and Euro-Atlantic institutions. Because that promise of European and Euro-Atlantic integration served as a really important incentive for many reformers in Central and Eastern Europe to sort of persevere and stay the course regardless of short-term difficulties and, and uh, succeed in that transition. Because for many of those countries, as Václav Havel once put it, this transition signified a return to Europe. This was a phrase that he used in his uh, um, address before the US Congress in, in February of 1990. We never had that promise in Russia. Uh, you know, to me, one of the most striking episodes was uh, in December of 1991, uh, just a few days before the red flag would finally go down on the Kremlin and the Soviet Union would cease to exist. There was a meeting at NATO headquarters in Brussels between NATO diplomats and the counterpart from, counterparts from former uh, Eastern Bloc countries. 
And at that meeting, the Russian ambassador delivered a letter signed by President Boris Yeltsin, addressed to the Secretary General of NATO, Manfred Werner, uh, raising the possibility of future Russian membership in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. He was not even warranted with a response. Mm. And this is just one example of many of how unprepared the West was back in the early 90s. And, and, and I'm not trying to sort of shift the blame. The, the main reasons for the failure of Russia's democratic transition in the 90s are undoubtedly domestic. There's no question about that. But the West could have helped and it did not help enough. And here is an important lesson for the next window of opportunity, whenever it comes, and it will. Uh, the lesson for us on the Russian side is that it's very important to reckon with the past and not to just sort of try to turn the page and move on because it doesn't work as we have seen in the 1990s. The people who were responsible for those crimes, both in Soviet times and now under Putin, have to be held responsible uh, for what they've done. And the regime itself has to be held responsible uh, to sort of turn that page in a real sense, not just superficially. And there are many examples of successful democratic transformations in the world, you know, from Chile to South Africa to South Korea, who have gone through this including many post-communist countries in Eastern Europe who have shown that it's very important to do that. On the Western side, I think it's very important for the, for the Western world, for the Western leaders, not to be so complacent that you know, the Putin regime is gonna be there forever because it won't be. And when it collapses, people once again will be taken by surprise and will not be ready again. So it's really important for the Western world the next time Russia engages on a democratic transition to, to be willing to stand there uh, and help to stand there and integrate that post-Putin democratic Russia uh, in the civilized society of nations where Russia belongs. And to your question about what kind of system it should be, I mean, that's the subject for a whole separate and long conversation. But one thing I would definitely say is that there is a growing consensus among uh, you know people in the Russian democracy movement that the system that replaces the Putin regime in Russia has to be much more of a parliamentary than a presidential system. Mm -hmm. I think our whole experience has shown that one person rule just doesn't work. Even if it's a decent and good intentioned person as Boris Yeltsin was, it still, mm -hmm. still did not end well. It just doesn't work in Russia when one individual has all the levers of power. It has to be a balanced system with all those democratic institutions and checks and balances built in and more of a parliamentary than presidential one. And so our goal in the end is not to replace you know, Putin with, let's say, Navalny. It's not to replace a bad czar with a quote-unquote mm -hmm. good czar, because there's no such thing as a good czar. Our goal is that there is never again a czar in Russia, and that there is a system of balance, a system of government that is actually accountable to citizens, to citizens through free elections. Right, that systemic change that's that's going to be more lasting. And I, I appreciate you raising, in particular, the point about. Um, Kind of that that early democratic transition in Russia and the promise that that could have been, but but um, took a turn for the worse. And and we're seeing that in fragile or, or nascent democracies early in their transition, um, you know, beyond Russia and, and former Soviet countries, as you mentioned as well. I want to shift um, to drill down on a point that you also raised with regard to the role of. Of, uh, of the United States and, and the free world in, in supporting those transitions. So as you know, um, the Reagan Institute recently launched our newest policy center, which is the Center for Freedom and Democracy. And, and the main project of the center um, will take a look at exactly that question in particular, um, you know, building on President Reagan's legacy of 
um, architecting a campaign to proactively advance freedom and democracy around the world in the last century, looking at how we can modernize those efforts for, for the 21st century. So I, I wonder if you have any reflections on kind of what the United States could or should be doing more of today. I mean, we, we've, we've got the tools on sanctions with the Global Magnitsky Act and, and I don't want to talk as much about the tools that we that we have. You know, maybe we should use them more and more effectively. I take that point, but but what new tools do we need um, to address the problems, some of the 21st century problems, whether that's you know advancing in, advances in technology or new new methods of of kleptocracy and corruption? Um, how how should we think about modernizing the, those efforts, particularly in terms of the United States role? I think it's more of a question of political will than tools. All the mm. tools are actually there. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm proud to have played my small uh, part more than a decade ago now in, in this uh, uh, drive and this campaign to get the United States to adopt the Magnitsky Act, which you mentioned. And that, is, of course, is a law. Yeah, well, let, let, let me save our, our listeners from believing it was a small part. You were an incredibly, you know, um, influential advocate for, for that and uh, working with my former boss, Senator McCain in particular, there, there were so many, I think, dissidents and, and uh, freedom fighters that really made the argument that, that those tools were, were, were necessary. Absolutely. And it was an absolute honor to, to, to have met and to have known Senator John McCain. His voice is sorely missed, I have to say, in, in, in Washington, D.C., if, if, if I may say that. I usually I, I try not, not to delve too much in American politics, but I think that's not a political, that's, that's just a plain statement of fact, that his was among the most principled voices in American politics, certainly on uh, issues that are dear to our hearts and human rights and democracy. And he played, as I don't need to tell you, a central role in, in making sure the Magnitsky Act did become law. And of course, for those who may not uh, be familiar with the details, the Magnitsky Act uh, is a law that uh, lays down a very simple principle, that those people who abuse the most basic human rights and freedoms in their own countries will no longer be allowed to travel to the United States, uh, own assets in the United States, and use the financial and banking systems of the United States. Initially, it was passed with regard to Russia only. Then it was made global to apply to any human rights abusers and corrupt actors all over the world. And since then, similar uh, pieces of legislation or mechanisms have been adopted in Canada, in the United Kingdom, and as of last December, in the entirety of the European Union. And that was a major victory uh, for this campaign for accountability. And I continue to be involved in this work. I continue to work with other countries and with other parliaments to make sure that they expand this geography of accountability because you know, there's, there's something really wrong about countries that pride themselves, Western countries that pride themselves on their adherence to democracy, the rule of law and human rights domestically, who are willing to allow these crooks and human rights abusers who deny the, the, the most basic democratic rights to their own people at home mm -hmm. and then come to enjoy the privileges and the benefits right. that democracy offers in the West. Because we know, certainly from the example of Putin's cronies and oligarchs, that you know all their second homes are in the West, their bank accounts are in the West. Uh, you know They send their wives and their mistresses on shopping trips in the West. They, they keep their families in the West and so on and so forth. And this is, of course, enormous hypocrisy and double standard on their part, but it's also enabling on the part of Western countries, because you know it's been said that the biggest export from Putin's regime to the West is not oil, it's not gas, it is corruption. And I completely agree with that sentiment. But that is, of course, a two-way street. And for someone to be able to export corruption, someone else needs to be willing to import it. And we have seen no shortage of that. And so the Magnitsky Act was 
intended to put a stop to that. And, and it has put down a very important marker, but unfortunately, you know, this enabling still continues on a very large scale. Just before he returned to Russia to be arrested, Alexei Navalny um, made a short list that his team later made public uh, of key oligarchs around Vladimir Putin, people like Roman Abramovich and Alisher Osmanov and others, um, who, you know, are looting and are stealing from our people in Russia and then coming out and stashing that stolen money in the West and, and sanctions should be targeted against them. So it's mm -hmm. not a question of tools. The tools are now thankfully there. It's a question of having political will to apply those tools. Uh, and, you know, by various accounts, there's around one trillion US dollars in private Russian assets that are stashed away uh, in foreign jurisdictions, mostly in, in Western jurisdictions and US and allied jurisdictions. Much of that wealth is linked to Vladimir Putin personally. And it's not okay that those people who are stealing from our people in Russia are allowed to use Western countries and Western banks as havens to hide that stolen wealth. And it's high time that the West does something about it. So that's what I would say uh, it would be the absolutely the most important thing. And there are precedents for this, you know, when these illicit assets of dictatorships right. were frozen, including by the United States, for example, with Gaddafi in Libya and with Bakiev, uh, he was not so much a dictator, but he was extremely corrupt in Kyrgyzstan, later to release those funds to their rightfully, uh, to their rightful owners, once those countries had lawfully and democratically elected governments. And that, to me, is what should be the model for Russia. You know, one of the main sort of lines that the Kremlin propaganda keeps repeating, lines and lies that the Kremlin propaganda keeps repeating, is that people like myself, you know, Russian opposition leaders, go to the West and we supposedly ask foreigners to give us money or to give us political support or to enact regime change in Russia, whatever other nonsense, you know, they come up with. Of course, I as I don't need to tell you, uh, none of that has anything to do with reality. Mm -hmm. You know, change in Russia can and should and I may add will only come from Russians themselves. It cannot be any other way. The only thing we do actually ask of the West is that it stay true to its values and that it stop enabling the Putin kleptocracy by giving them an opportunity to stash away those stolen money in the West, to in effect stop supporting the Putin dictatorship by providing it with those financial lifelines. That's the only thing we ask. And that I think should be the first order of priority uh, for Western dealings uh, with Vladimir Putin. Well, let me ask you one one final question before we go to our, our lightning round. As you, as you think through and, and talk through, um, you know, the role of the United States here and the, and the generating the political will needed to to stand up for for freedom and democracy abroad. Um, you know, you've you've lived in the United States and split your time between between Washington and Moscow. And in recent years, you've had a front row seat to some of our own problems uh, here in the U.S. Um, I won't ask you to comment on the domestic United States uh, political situation, like you said, but but as we look at things, whether it's the protests around racial injustice or some of our do domestic unrest and and you know most recently a, a violent attack attack on our very very democracy, what do you say to people who assert that the United States or the free world, um, or that the United States kind of, you know, which, which, which is viewed as the leader of the free world, that we don't have the, have the standing to, to support these, these values in other, other countries. Well, I will say that it is important to, uh, to serve as, as an example, primarily, as people say to, you know, it's not the, uh, um, well, how does the phrase go? It's not the um, 
example of, of, of your power, it's the power of your example. Mm -hmm. that, that is the most important thing. And, you know, as President Reagan said, the shining city on the hill, it's, it's important to live up to, to those standards. And, and that's, that's the only comment I would make that goes not just for the US, that goes for, for all democracies. But I have to say that I fundamentally reject, uh, you know, those sort of hypocritical statements, very often made by Putin's propagandists and other uh, sort of fellow travelers globally, that um, all those recent events in the US have shown that you know, the American democracy is finished, that the US no longer has any moral right, you know, to, to, uh, to talk about these issues of democracy and human rights. This is complete nonsense, uh, in my view. And, and again, speaking more as a historian here than as a politician, one of the most amazing features of democracy generally is its potential for self-correction. And that is in fact a system that allows to correct those injustices and those flaws, which exist in any country. Mm -hmm. You know, no country on this earth is perfect. No political system on this earth is perfect. But as you know, as Churchill once said, democracy seems like a very bad system uh, until you've tried everything else. Right. Uh, and that's just you know exactly how it is. And uh, you know, when some of my American friends were really pessimistic uh, about the state of you know american democracy american society i always said to them again not my place to sort of comment on american politics in any way but sort of as a general general comment i never had any doubt that whatever difficulties your country and your system uh, is going through they will self-correct they will heal they will you will be able to to manage and, and come out stronger for it uh, and i think the future will prove me right on this point. Again, one of the one of the biggest, in fact, advantages of a democracy right. is the fact that it's accountable, that it's uh, it does have those balances and those checks built into it. And it's amazing potential for self-correctness. And I think with all of these difficulties that, you know, Putin's propaganda and other authoritarian regimes have frankly gloated about and, and loved talking about, including what happened in Washington on January 6th, in the end, this will also be proof that democracy is the best form of government that will allow the nation uh, to overcome all of these problems. Right. Well, you worked in a, a Churchill quote at the end there, which we do allow on the Reaganism podcast, but we also ask our guests, just as we wrap up here, um, our lightning round questions of your favorite Reagan quote, speech, or book. Uh, you can choose one, two, or three, but if you just briefly wanna, wanna give us that as we wind down here. Well, to me, there's no question. My favorite Reagan speech is, of course, the Westminster speech, June 1982, uh, one of the most powerful addresses uh, in defense of freedom and democracy globally. And I recently reread it, and it's amazing how, uh, you know, nearly four decades later, the, those words still ring true and topical and important today. One of the strongest points uh, the President Reagan made in that speech. Uh, and, and here actually goes my favorite quote of President Reagan's. It is from the Westminster speech when he said, and I quote, we must be staunch in our conviction that freedom is not the sole prerogative of a lucky few, but the inalienable and universal right of all human beings, end of quote. Because to this day, we still hear those insulting statements that, you know, some peoples or some nations are just not made for democracy. They're not suited for democracy. You know, what Reagan called in that same speech, cultural condescension or worse. This is wrong, this is false, this is insulting. And I think to me, this is one of the strongest points he made, not just in the speech, but throughout his presidency and throughout his public life. And my favorite book uh, that, that I would that would name 
about President Reagan. It's not only specifically about him, but it's dedicated to him. It's a book called Statecraft. It's by Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you know, in April of 2002, Boris Nemtsov took me to see Margaret Thatcher in London. Uh, that, that was the only time I met her in person. Uh, I have that book. I'm honored to have that book standing here just behind me on the bookshelf with her personal note on it to me. Uh, and um, and that was, you know, one of the strong, strongest impressions of my life to have met her in person, to have spoken with her. And um, this book, Statecraft, is dedicated to Ronald Reagan, who was right, as she put it. And, uh, and there is, of course, there are many references to him in the book, including his Berlin Wall speech in 1987 and many, many other things. So uh, th this book covers a wide array of topics. Actually, one of the chapters in there is about Boris Nemtsov and the successful free market experiment that he engineered in Nizhny Novgorod in Russia in the mid-90s. But a lot of it is about Ronald Reagan, and it's dedicated to Ronald Reagan. So um, I hope you can accept it in that category. Well, you might be our first guest to mention a book dedicated to Ronald Reagan. So that's, uh, that's a first for the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vladimir. It's been a wonderful conversation. And thanks also for, for the important work that you'll continue to do. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's always good to join you, even in this format, and I hope before long we can see each other in person. Indeed, and thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you next week.